passage and message for this morning. I should just give you an update. Uh, we've put it on the email already, but not looking at anybody's. Not everybody looks at their emails from church, so I just thought I'd uh, give you an update there. But there's uh, an exciting uh, development that's occurred in our look for a an associate pastor with special responsibilities for youth and young adults. So we've been looking now for around two and a half years and put out national, international advertisements on a couple of different rounds. I think I've had about 40 different interactions, kept getting no, 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 no. But Lord, is this me? I've heard him say no. It's actually him, not me. <laughs> you know, might have got that wrong. But anyway, finally, uh, a guy that I've been talking with for about two years has actually come at the around April and just said, yeah, I, I really am interested. Actually, it might have been earlier than April. So we had a very good interview with him on Monday night and he presented humbly and winsomely uh, with a biblical conviction, a depth, uh, with a real pastoral warmth. And so I vetted his name through the Governance Council, through the pastoral staff. It was a hearty, unanimous vote from the pastoral selection team. Jay, Sue, uh, Summer, Caleb uh, Crane was sick that night, myself, uh, and full support from Governance Council and pastoral staff. So I drafted off a letter and I got it back yesterday. He signed and has said yes. So I can't tell you... How Can't tell you who uh, it is yet because I don't think he's actually told his church. Um, but some of you will be able to figure it out, I'm sure. Um, but hopefully he'll be able to commence around the end of August. So church, yay God, you know, this is amazing. You gave as a church for this. And we've been searching, searching, saying, God, what is it? Why aren't people coming in finally? And we just have a real confidence that God is leading this. So four days a week, associate pastor, special responsibilities for youth and young adults, be able to do some uh, ministry too in the whole area of worship. And God willing, he'll be able to commence uh, towards the end of August. So I'm just so thankful for that. Amen. Well, we are going to uh, finalize, complete, round out, our series in Matthew 18 that we've been looking at this term, uh, the Upside Down Kingdom. And it is a wonderful beauty of a passage. So uh, let me pray and then we'll get into it. The Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the things you are doing among us and we just honour you as the God who does all things well praise you for what you've been doing in Summer's life. praise you for what you've been doing among us in bringing uh, the right person to us for youth and young adults. And Father God, we ask that you would continue to work powerfully by your grace, by the power of your spirit for the magnification of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you do your work in our midst? And we pray, Father, that your glory will be reserved for you and you alone, that nobody will be able to look on and say, oh, there's some human reason for that. Father, we ask that all praise will be reserved for you, that no flesh will be able to boast in your presence, but that our God will be magnified among us. And so even in these moments now as we open up your word, we ask you, Heavenly Father, that you will do things that are supernatural, by nature, 
that could not be explained humanly. That there'll be interactions that occur, transactions that occur, that are simply the reality of heaven breaking in over earth. And so we pray now, may your Holy Spirit give us insight, grant us attention and concentration. Be with my brothers and sisters and friends as they listen. I ask your enabling for me as I speak. We commit this time to you and ask that you'll be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you know uh, this building here? It'll be very familiar to you all. 108 St. George's Terrace now has the big South 32 sign on it, uh, the big um, mining company. It was uh, built in 1988 and it was the tallest building in Perth for four years uh, until 1992 before it got um, overtaken by, I can't remember which one. But how many of you remember it when it had this sign on it? Hey, look at that. A couple of other old fuddy-duddies like me, I remember that. And it, look, it's even got Bond down there. So R&I since has become Bank West in 1994. But uh, yes, there is a story that is waiting to be told that apparently occurred in 1993 when that was on 108 St George's Terrace. It was the height of the WA Inc. scandal fallout. So Alan Bond's empire had collapsed. The Bond sign's probably come down from that picture. Brian Burke had been caught up in the whole affair with WA Inc. because of his cosy relationship as a premier with the likes of Laurie Connell. Uh, They were heady times. In 1993, Richard Court was the premier of WA. And the managing director of the R&I Bank was a man named Warwick Kent. He only passed away five years ago, 2018. But during this period, he was known among the city's business world as a real gentleman. That's what they said in his eulogies. As one eulogy put it, he was as likeable as a 1990s banker could be. (laughs) With the shiniest black shoes anyone in Perth had ever seen, apparently. Uh, As respected as he was, he did not suffer fools lightly. And he embarked on rebuilding this local Perth-based bank following the 1987 stock market crash and then the commercial property crash of 1990. The particular story that I want to tell you focuses on an event that uh, occurred apparently around June 1993 as Warwick Kent was conducting an audit of outstanding debts among his branch managers. There was one particular branch manager, Ernest Scanlon, uh, known as Big E by his friends and in a less favourable way by staff behind his back. He was the manager of the Claremont branch and he had racked up a colossal amount of company loans for his own personal benefit. Uh, The bank at that time allowed very low interest rates to senior staff members and owing to the heady carelessness of the time, and uh, Scanlon's particular proclivities, a massive debt had accumulated. Scanlon, you see, was reported to relish in the lavish, uh, indicating how he kept taking personal loans from the RNI Bank to pay for his very fine taste in all things opulent. Things like the finest Swiss watches, French tailored suits, imported Italian 
sports cars, regular extravagant overseas holidays, along with, of course, his palatial home in Mosman Park. And he had a reputation for spending inordinate amounts of money at the Perth Cup, where he was often seen celebrating with Laurie Connell after yet another win by one of his uh, horses. On this particular day in June 1993, Scanlon was seconded by the bank's security guards at his branch and taken to meet the managing director on floor 47. Everyone knew what it meant to appear on floor 47. There was going to be a reckoning. Scanlon was escorted up the lift and then as he entered the boardroom overlooking the Swan River, Warwick Kent had Scanlon stand before him, foregoing the normal polite seating protocol. And he began to explain that in an effort to settle the books and shore up the bank's position, an audit had been conducted of all outstanding debts owed by senior staff. Warwick Kent proceeded to read out the amount owed by Scanlon to the bank from his extravagant lifestyle and personal loans. It was a staggering $347 million. Kent said calmly that this was totally unacceptable. Scanlon would be relieved of his position effective immediately and be handed over to the bailiff and police officer attending the meeting to retrieve as much of the debt as possible. He fully anticipated bankruptcy, a forced sale of all property and a potential prison term. Apparently, on hearing this, Scanlon collapsed on the spot in a very uncharacteristic way and he crawled around to clasp Kent's feet. Weeping, he begged Kent for time to pay him back. It was one of those moments where Warwick Kent showed his truly gentlemanly nature. As Kent looked down at Scanlon, feet around his ankles, sorry, hands around his ankles, his demeanour softened, his eyes welled with tears of pity for this man full of bravado, but actually a hollow man. And in a totally unprecedented act, declared, very well, I release you from this debt and hereby absolve you from all obligation to repay. And the story goes that Scanlon fairly skipped out of that boardroom and returned immediately to his branch, whereupon he saw a young bank clerk who owed him about $6,000. His face flushed red with rage as he spotted her. He approached the young clerk uh, aggressively and began to throttle her, yelling, pay me back, you good-for-nothing. That The clerk was gasping for time to repay, was beginning to pass out as some other staff intervened to pry Scanlon away from her. Other uh, bank staff witnessed the event. They called the R&I Tower for intervention. Within the hour, Scanlon was appearing on floor 47 again, and this time there was no moistness in Kent's eyes as he reversed the previous merciful ruling and brought the full force of the law upon Scanlon. It's said that following Scanlon's arrest and bankruptcy, his wife left him, his children disowned him, and he can still be heard as he serves out his life prison sentence in Hakia Prison, moaning about how unjust everyone has been to him. A bitter, twisted old man. What a story, hey? 
Sound unbelievable? It's because it is. I completely made it up. Totally fictitious. Well, not totally. Hmm. I, uh, I took a leaf out of a, a great book that I just love. And I, uh, I've, I've been following a master storyteller that I worship. But it, it serves to introduce the whole theme of forgiveness for us this morning. So let's read Matthew 18 and you'll notice where I drew my inspiration. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him and said, Pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, Be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into the prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Because he, the king, was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. And so, Jesus concludes the parable, and so my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Let's have a look at this. Jesus' kingdom parable on forgiveness. One of the first things is we've got to notice the context. Jesus has um, just mentioned about if a brother or sister sins against you. And so Peter asks a question. He says, well, how often will my brother or sister sin against me? You've just raised the topic. How often should this occur? You know, surely there can't be a a limitless amount of times that a brother or sister can sin against you. So the rabbis of the day said that you're allowed to forgive a person three times if they sin against you in the same way. Uh, After strike three, you're out. So Peter has been around Jesus for a while. He knows that Jesus is a radical teacher. So he takes the norm, he doubles it, he adds one for good measure and he says seven times. Is that good, Jesus, you know? Is, is that a really good attempt at how gracious and radical you are? And Jesus replies by saying, 
No. No. 70 times 7. Now, it could be 77 or it could be 490. It's a little bit unsure of how to, uh, how to get it. The fact is, Peter has no idea how radical Jesus is. Jesus is basically saying, stop counting. Forget this whole uh, keeping count business. Jesus is saying to Peter, if, if you think forgiveness is something you meter out with a counter, then you haven't understood it at all. If you're limiting it, if you're setting restrictions, if you're keeping count, then you've missed the whole truth about forgiveness. And so in the context of this question from a disciple that reveals a disturbing lack of understanding about grace, Jesus tells a story on the fly, a particular kind of story. It's a parable. It's a masterful type of story that draws from realms that are familiar and transposes it up so that we get insight to an unfamiliar realm. Now, it's not the first time that Jesus has been delivering parables. So last year in term two, we spent the whole term looking at a set of parables in Matthew chapter 13. And there were six of them that were all introduced with this telltale phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven was Jesus' signature message. If you ever wondered what Jesus spoke about all the time, that was his go-to message, announcing the gospel of, of, of the kingdom of heaven telling people about the kingdom of heaven. And yet, for all of his teaching on the kingdom, 53 times it occurs in the Gospel of Matthews, for all of the times that Jesus spoke about the kingdom, you cannot find one place where Jesus gives a succinct definition of what the kingdom of heaven is. Instead, what does he do? Parable after parable after parable with this telltale phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. So in Matthew chapter 13, there's a cluster. Six of them have that introduction. Jesus weaves a story to give an insight about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And now in chapter 18, this is the first of a latter cluster, the first of five, where Jesus has five other parables all introduced with that phrase. He's giving insight into understanding what is the kingdom of heaven like that he's been introducing. And it does it through parables. So let's break it down to try to deduce the meaning. I'm going to follow the sequential movement of the parable, look at four points that emerge. And each of these points is strongly uh, cross-current, cross-grain with our culture. We struggle with each of them successively. One, two, three, and that sets us up for all kinds of trouble in the fourth. But let's have a look. Firstly, there's God and his royal authority. The central figure in the parable is the king. And Jesus helps us understand who the king represents. Verse 35, he says, so my heavenly father. But in this whole latter cluster of kingdom of heaven parables, there is always a towering central figure in in these stories. It, It might be a delayed bridegroom. It might be a very wealthy landowner who goes and hires people for his work in the vineyard. It could be a, a very wealthy master who distributes his wealth before he goes away on leave and he's absent. Or there's a couple of them that actually have a king. And so 
throughout this parable, you get the impression that Jesus is wanting to highlight the immense authority that God wields as a king. He reigns as king over some domain. People are under his authority. There are servants who do his bidding. So he makes up his mind to settle accounts, to clear outstanding debts among his kingdom, and a major auditing program is initiated throughout the kingdom. When God makes up his mind, things start happening. He calls people before him, he summons them, and they come. He can give orders, and they're carried out. He has the authority and the freedom to do as he pleases with his servants. He is free to act as he wishes, whether that is in compassion and mercy or in justice and anger. God is king. You see what Jesus is teaching here through these parables about God. Our God is king, brothers and sisters. He always has been. He always will be. He is enthroned. He alone is God. We are his creatures. We exist due to the fact that he had an eternal decision and he had the creative power to make this whole shooting match. We are totally dependent upon him for life and for breath. He occupies this supreme position of unrivaled authority in the universe. He created it. He therefore has the natural right, the prerogative, to give instructions concerning his will for his creatures to follow. And he expects it to be followed, to punish it if it's not. We, on the other hand, are duty-bound to obey, to submit, to give thanks and to glorify him. He is in this position of majestic authority with no need to request our permission. Uh, There's no higher authority to whom he must give an account and we are all subject to him. We must give account to him. And so we've got to see this foundational truth in this parable to make sense of our world. Jesus' parable stated emphatically, it's an essential building block to actually understand the rest. And I want to emphasize it because I think we really struggle as Aussies in this whole area. We seem to have a distinct disadvantage when it comes to showing reverence towards majesty we are if you like majesty challenged (laughs) Um, and I think that owes its origins to our uh, European convict settlement coming over as convicts from mother England indigenous Australians they had some natural deference to their elders to ancestors Uh, other immigrant cultures have a real capacity to show honor to their elders but the the national psyche that was formed from the European uh, convict settlement days has resulted in a a natural default position of derision and suspicion against those in positions of authority. We are fiercely egalitarian. And this in turn sadly affects our capacity, our our know-how in relating with God. We Aussies are basically unfamiliar with the whole concept of demonstrating reverence towards figures of royal authority. Uh, Our royals are on the other side of the planet and we often deem them a pretty strange lot, all cooped up in palaces with corgis and affairs and infighting. 
and we don't seem to demonstrate that natural deference. Our history shows we're very cautious about conferring respect on people in positions of authority. Mind you, uh, look at it the way we treat sporting heroes. We know how to worship. We're just really cautious about giving that to people who state that they have a position. But these parables call us, Jesus calls us through them, to you and to me, that we need to grow in our, our estimation of God's position. There is a God in heaven and he is king. And Jesus is calling us, you and me, to grow in our capacity to show reverence towards this king. So there's God and his royal authority. Secondly, there's me and my big sin. So look at this man. He's simply identified as the debtor who's brought before the king and uh, the amount of money that he owes is 10,000 talents. Now let's break that down so it makes some sense for our day. A, a talent was a measurement of weight. It could be around um, 26 to 38 kilograms. And it could be measured in gold, uh, silver or copper. A talent was worth around 6,000 days wages. It was a very large measurement. It was equivalent to around 20 years. So when Jesus says 10,000, that translates a word that simply means a myriad. It's a numberless amount. Whether we render it 10,000, it's, it's just an attempt to show the size of the figure. It's probably not as exact and precise as 10,000. So the sum of the dead is made up of the highest number used in arithmetic and the largest unit of money employed at the time. What is Jesus saying? It's a debt running into billions. You multiply that by an average of $300 a day and, and we're talking around $18 billion. So the money, the amount of money that this bloke owes is astronomical. It, it staggers the imagination that a person could actually accumulate this big a debt. And there is absolutely no way he could earn enough in a lifetime to pay it off. He could work every year for 200,000 years and not pay this off. Jesus is deliberately using a figure that everybody just goes, what? <laughs> What's the point? Jesus is using this astronomical financial debt as a way to illustrate the magnitude of our sin against God. Every time we sin against God, it's like, it's like swiping those old credit cards on the rack rack. You, you remember those ones? Rack rack. There's a, there's a bad word, rack rack. There's an impure thought, rack rack. There's a nasty um, action, you know, rack, rack. It's just accumulating wrong actions. And, and, and then there's these ones. Oh, I didn't do anything wrong today, rack, rack. I'm a lot better than Jim or Jane over there, rack, rack. I don't know how they live with themselves, rack, 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 you know. And we go through the day just going rack, 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 rack. And there is this massive pile of debt that stretches to the heavens, 
we tend to think that we are basically good people. We have rose-coloured glasses when it comes to looking at ourselves. We're basically good-natured people who just slip up every now and again. Jesus confronts us with that and says, no, do you have any idea how much your sin has accumulated before this royal God? And there's no possible way that we can erase it or eradicate it. We are completely helpless without any capacity to remove it ourselves. If we were called to the mat for all of our sin before God, no hope whatsoever. Just face certain judgment. And so here we are before a king of royal authority with a debt of unimaginable magnitude. Thirdly, there's God and his great grace. So when the servant is forced to face up to his debt, he hears this order to sell his family and possessions as punishment for the enormous debt. He falls on his face. He just collapses on the spot and he begs for mercy. He asks for more time. Register that. That's a real clue to understanding this, this story. We'll come back to that. In verse 27, how does the, the king respond? He says he was... He took pity. He was moved with compassion. His insides were twisted. And he just cancels the debt and lets him go. So the servant asks for more time to repay it, an impossible scenario. And instead, the king just clears the whole debt and lets him off scot-free. Now, forgiveness was not a concept that was foreign to Jesus' audience. A good Jewish audience, they knew that there was a lot of instruction in the Torah about how you could be forgiven. And it all revolved around taking some sacrifice to a tabernacle or a temple and there'd be some ritual and and they could declare forgiveness. As you put your hands on a, a beast or an animal of some sort and there's this picture of your guilt being transferred and then that animal would be killed and, and you could be declared forgiveness. However, in the Torah, there is no provision for intentional sins. All of them are unintentional sins. So they're sins that you've done and only in hindsight you realize, oh, shouldn't have done that, didn't mean to do that, did do that. There's no category for forgiving intentional sins in, in, the, in Leviticus and the, the first five books of the Old Testament. But when Jesus comes along and announces this uh, epoch-making, in-breaking of the kingdom of heaven, he would go around to people and he would just declare them, like he did to the paralytic who was lowered through a roof, son, your sins are forgiven. And so little wonder that the religious authorities of the day would look on, their, their jaws would drop and they go, what? He's, he's not a priest, there's no sacrifice, he's not in a tabernacle, there's no ritual. He just goes around announcing forgiveness. How can this be? And Jesus will say to them, I have authority on earth to forgive sins. This is completely new. And notice something else. There's something else to reflect on here in the way that forgiveness occurred in this parable. When it comes to financial debts, what happens when a creditor cancels a debt? What happens to the debt? Who incurs the cost of it? See, financial debts don't just go away. They don't just vanish. Someone must pay for it. It's just that the money that was owed by that debtor, he's off the hook. 
the king absorbs the loss. Do you see? The king says, I will never get that whopping amount of money owed back to me. I'm releasing you and I'm going to incur it. Do you see that that is an insight to the cross? That is precisely what happened. As father sends son, as son willingly goes to the cross, as soldiers pin him up on a cross, as father loads all sin of a rebel humanity onto his shoulders, and there is the as the earth goes dark for three hours, Jesus is absorbing in himself the cost of our debt. And when he let out his final shout, it is finished. In the original, it's tetelestai. That's the colloquial word for paid in full. God incurred the debt in himself, in his son, at the cross. We couldn't do it, but God did it for us. He absorbed it. Out of compassion, he releases us. That's why Jesus could announce you're forgiven, because he's anticipating the fact that he will take every sin and pay for it completely at the cross. Who is a pardoning God like thee, and who has grace so rich and free? If you kept a record of sins, O God, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you. Therefore, you are feared. So there's... There's God and his royal authority. We struggle with that. There's me and my big sin. We struggle with that. And then there's God and his great grace. We struggle with that. We struggle to actually receive a gift. I'll pay you back. Give me time. And then fourthly, there's others and their comparatively small offences. So the forgiven servant walks out from the king's presence completely forgiven. But we wonder if he knows it. (laughs) And he bumps into a personal debtor. Jesus deliberately draws the contrast between the amount that the first servant owed, astronomical, and the amount that the second servant owed, 100 denarii. Denarii was an average day's wage for a soldier or a labourer. So it's 100 days worth, about a third of a year. So in our equivalents, around 25 to 35 grand. Not insignificant, but in comparison to the billions of dollar debt, it's a mere trifle. And Jesus is is deliberately drawing this contrast between our sin against God and other sins against us. You see, friends, we live in a fallen world. And not only will we sin against God, but we're also going to be bumping up against each other and we'll sin against each other. And there'll be times when you are spoken against, there'll be times when you are hurt, there'll be times when you are wronged, there'll be times when you are offended. Some of you here know exactly what that's like and you may have incurred very deep wounds and hurts. And Jesus is not invalidating that. He's just wanting us to see others' sins against us in perspective of our colossal sin before God. And so the first servant sees this second servant. He begins choking them. Pay me back what you owe. And the second servant repeats almost verbatim what the first servant said. Have patience with me and I'll pay you back. But he would not. See, how will we respond when others sin against us 
how will we deal with them? Will we choose to, to forgive or will we, ref- we refuse to forgive? Now, fascinatingly, in this story, at this stage, logically, there are two potential outcomes. It could go either way. There's two hypothetical scenarios of how this could play out. And Jesus deliberately spins this story, weaves it in such a way that he's elaborating on the second option, the negative option. And he's leaving the positive one going begging. That's what we crave for. So what, do we, what happens if we refuse to forgive others? And that's what the second servant shows us. Sorry, that's what the first servant shows us. The second servant repeats back almost verbatim what the first servant had said. But the contrasting response is that he refused. He was not willing and he threw that second servant, only owed 100 denarii, into prison. Other servants hear of it and the reaction is one of feeling enraged, distressed to an extreme degree is how you translate that. And that is precisely the reaction that Jesus wants to elicit from us when we hear this story. To not show forgiveness to a small debt when we've just received forgiveness for a massive debt is an outrage. It's unthinkable. Don't you remember, mate, how much you were just forgiven? What on earth do you think you're doing throttling somebody for a trifle of a debt in comparison? Can't you see injustice of it all, that you can receive that and yet inflict that. So Peter is getting his question answered here. To to keep a record of others' sins against us when God has forgiven us so, so completely is totally ludicrous. It's unthinkable. But it's not only ludicrous, it's also dangerous and torturous. And so the king uh, sends him to prison, which was more a a gesture of punishment rather than an attempt for reimbursement. He throws him and and then he gets angry and he hands him over to the jailers to be tortured, to inflict punishment. It's an outrage, it's dangerous, it's torturous. And that's what happens when we refuse to forgive. It's like we torture ourselves. You become the sort of person that's always rehearsing what somebody's done wrong to you. And in conversations, you'll try to bring it up. Well, you know what they did next, you know, the blighters. And in your own personal space, it's always going over and over and over and over. And and you just become poisoned with bitterness. It is torturous in this life and, friends, torturous for eternity. That's what it's like. But trace the problem back to its source. Why couldn't this first servant forgive the second one? Remember the clue? If a person refuses to forgive others, it actually suggests that they never received forgiveness themselves in the first place. And that was the case with that first servant. He didn't ask for for forgiveness from the king. He asked for more time to pay the billions back. He's still clutching, you see, to his bookkeeping system. Why can't he show forgiveness? Because he's never received it in the first place. 
He hasn't come to grips with the magnitude of his sin. Just give me more time, I'll fix it up. And it's because he never received this unbelievable, utterly free, complete gift of forgiveness that he cannot in turn show it. So what's it like for us if we refuse to forgive? It is an outrage. It is dangerous. It is torturous for this life and for eternity. Some of you were wondering who those characters were in the story that I made up at the start. Not all of them were fictitious. Warren Kent was actually the managing director at that time in 1993. He was known as a true gentleman with the shiniest black shoes anybody in Perth has ever seen. But uh, Ernest Scanlon, complete fiction. But here's the thing. Who is Ernest Scanlon? And he's me when we choose not to forgive. That's who Ernest Scanlon is. That's the kind of person we become. So that negative example is meant to provoke us to desire the positive. What if we choose to forgive? So instead of the way this story plays out, you sort of want the opposite. What if we choose to forgive? And fascinatingly, the way that we forgive follows a very similar process to the way that God forgave us. So here's four steps. Firstly is that we have to acknowledge the debt that others have committed against us. So it doesn't help to pretend it didn't happen. You acknowledge it. You recognize it. You identify it. But then you make the decision to not demand repayment. You say, I am not going to be judge and jury. I'm not going to hold on to this desire to take revenge. I am not going to demand that you pay. So you're left with a debt. What do you do with that? We choose to absorb the cost. We say, I was wronged, and now that is a part of my story, and I'm going to bear that. And then you lift that up, that debt, that pain, that offence to the Father, and you ask him for his healing, for his justice. You know, Lewis Smead used to say that when we genuinely forgive, we set a prisoner free and then discover that the prisoner we set free was us. The first and often the only person he said to be healed by forgiveness is the person who does the forgiving. So if we choose to forgive, we, we find ourselves freed from bitterness and resentment. We actually begin to experience healing from the Father for the wounds that we bear. So let me wrap it up in conclusion. Do you need to receive God's forgiveness today? You may be here today and things are clicking for you in a way that perhaps they've never done so before and you recognise that there is a God. You sense the truth of that bearing upon your spirit and you sense also that before this royal God there is a magnitude of your sin in different ways. But you know that you're guilty of cosmic treason against this God. Friends, don't ask for more time to pay it off. You never could. Come before this gracious God and cast yourself upon his mercy. And let me tell you what this God has done. He sent his son to take every sin that you and I have committed. And he's already paid for it all. And if you would come in repentance before God, humbly saying sorry and placing your trust in Jesus, do you know the verdict of the king? 
He says, you are forgiven. Not just in part, not with me looking over your shoulder and checking up some book. No, no, no. The books are torn up. You are forgiven. So friends, if you're a Christian here today, let me just preach the gospel to you. Because I know how easy it is to be a Christian and say, yeah, yeah, I really received a good favour from God, but I'll pay him back for it. And so we keep on this treadmill of works trying to think, oh, I've just got to really do good things around the church and, you know, because I'm paying God back. No, you don't. You never could. God gave you a gift. So if you placed your faith in Jesus, let me declare the gospel to you. In the name of Jesus, however big you feel your sin is, in the name of Jesus, by his authority, not mine, I declare to you, you are forgiven. Let that sink in. For some of you, it may need to happen for the first time. For some of you, it might need to happen in a fresh way. And following on from that, when you receive it, you can then extend it. Do you need to extend forgiveness, your forgiveness to somebody? Instead of carrying something around, my precious, you know, always rubbing it, my precious, this wound, I'm holding on to it, I'm a bitter little golem, you know. Could you conduct an audit and go, yeah, that person actually really did hurt me. They sinned against me. But the Father has released me and so in the name of the Lord Jesus, I declare forgiveness. Friends, that could be the hardest thing you ever do. But let me tell you, if you do that, that could very well be the start of a whole new season of freedom and healing from your spirit where all of a sudden, there is this sense of a flow of grace washing through you. Thus ends the parable. Let's pray.